This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 204 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Recorded Future's Insight Group recently published a research report titled The Business of Fraud, an overview of how cybercrime gets monetized. The report describes the types of fraud methods and services currently used by threat actors to facilitate their campaigns. It provides an overview of some notable recent developments, lists some of the top vendors of these services on the criminal underground, and provides suggested mitigations for defenders to implement. Joining us this week to discuss their findings are Recorded Futures Kirill Boychenko and Roman Sanikov, both members of the Insect Group's Team Cybercrime and Underground. Stay with us. Roman, why don't I start with you? Uh, the, the report is called The Business of Fraud, an overview of how cybercrime gets monetized. What prompted the creation of the report here? That's a great question. So one of the things that we've noticed is that uh, in our profession, there's a lot of focus on preventing things like unauthorized access. Uh, and justifiably so. Obviously, we don't want uh, bad guys and threat actors uh, being able to get into places where they don't. But what we've noticed is that there isn't as much of a focus or isn't as thorough an understanding of what frequently happens after uh, the fact that when the cyber criminals have gained access to something. So, for example, be it uh, credit card information, uh, be it PII, be it other types of information, how do they then monetize that access? The cyber crime is called crime for a reason, and that's because they're trying to gain uh, something financially from all of their hard work, all the threat actors' hard work. So we decided to put together this report really detailing the various aspects um, of the kind of what I like to call the second half of the cycle um, after they've gained access to your credit card data, your bank account data, all that kind of data. What do they do next? How do they actually make money uh, from something like that? Kirill, can you give us a little bit of a notion of where we stand today in, in terms of the, the lay of the land, the, the kind of breadth and spectrum of what you all see when it comes to cybercrime? So what we see is that cybercriminal fraud is, is an ecosystem, and it's pretty specialized. We see that there are specialized vendors of different services. We see that there are threat actors that advertise very specific tools that are tailored for different methods of fraud. We see that uh, that it all comes as different different methods, and there are different different targets for fraudsters on uh, criminal underground, as we as we see, and and there are cash out schemes. So we see that this is a very much um, an interconnected ecosystem where cyber criminals cooperate with each other. Um, advertise specific tools and are quite specialized in in their fraud offerings. I think one of the things that that strikes me that we've seen over the past few years is the the degree to which there's been professionalization here that, and even specialization. Yeah, what are you seeing there, Kirill? Uh, we see that that the courses are uh, are very specialized or they're very general. Sometimes you can see a training course that would encompass 
many different fraud vectors. There would be payment card fraud and money mules and cash out services, or it could be very specialized, for example, on um, account takeover or on uh, creating fraudulent documents, things like that. And we we found that that these tutorials and, and courses, if they don't represent cutting edge instructions, uh, they still give uh, an entry to novice cyber criminals to enter fraud. And we, we also see that, um, that communities that provide this, this training, it's not like they're, they're willing to share their know-how, their, their secret sauce. We rather think that they're trying to uh, feed the ecosystem. So when they train novice cyber criminals, they realize that later they will become their customers. They will be buying stolen payment card data from them. They will be ordering money mule services from them. They will be their customers. So they're very much interested in giving the training, even though it may not be earth-shattering techniques. How hard is it to get access to these sorts of, of, of bits of information? I mean, is there a is there a vetting process before they will share it or make it available to someone? Some of these tutorials and courses are very available, and some of them come as like text or documents that one can just read. But there could be some that are very closed, and um, in order to to get in, you need to go through a vetting process. There is a paywall. Some are very private. And we talk about some some specific examples of different uh, fraud courses offered on 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 the dark webinar report. I think uh, kind of if I could jump in, uh, what Kirill said is that this is a great way for them to really uh, not only create clients but also to recruit and to really set up that next. Uh, kind of level of individuals who are going to be working for them. Uh, and at the same time, it greatly lowers the barrier to entry for individuals who are trying to kind of break into uh, cybercrime because now you have experienced uh, threat actors who are sharing the knowledge that they've gotten through years of actually perpetrating. So they'll tell you, you know, Things like what kind of um, what kind of services to use, what how to circumvent uh, anti fraud mitigation, how to behave when you're trying to uh, do social engineering uh, at a bank. Uh, frequently, some of these tutorials are specialized, uh, like Kirill said, for specific uh, companies and specific entities, uh, and so you'll have individuals who will say, hey, this bank requires this type of information to open an account uh, and to enroll uh, compromised payment uh, cards, whereas this bank only requires, you know, a lesser amount of information. Um, so again, this is something that normally in the in the old days, it would have taken the uh, criminal threat actors themselves, you know, months, if not years, to figure these things out by trial and error. And now you have individuals who are uh, either feeding it or selling it to relatively new individuals who don't have to uh, kind of spend as much time making mistakes. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that there's, you know, there's a concerted effort here to make sure that you have new, fresh talent in the pipeline. 
Yeah, absolutely. As uh, kind of uh, over the years, uh, being on a lot of these forums and platforms, uh, this is kind of considered to be a young man's game, so to speak. Uh, and uh, it's something that most of the individuals, by the time they're maybe in their uh, 30s and 40s, uh, traditionally try to uh, retire or move away from. Uh, and so, or at least they try to move up to a different uh, level of um, activity. So they're not the ones who are, for example, uh, conducting the cash outs. They're not the ones who are going to banks and trying to withdraw funds, or they're not the ones who are trying to buy things online with uh, stolen, uh, with compromised credentials, or compromised payment cards. They're the ones who are more behind the scenes and further removed from the activity, uh, which obviously lessens the the potential of them uh, being arrested, uh, them being identified. I was just thinking if in terms of uh, putting into perspective of how the courses are organized, to give an example, uh, there is one course that is offered on um, on a well-known um, underground forum, and the, uh, the organizers of the course are running it since 2015, and they offer it on monthly basis. So there are over 10,000 cyber criminals that have taken this course. And it's widely advertised among different underground forums. It's been taught by 10 to 15 instructors. These are cyber criminals with reputation. And they, they have their own services offering different financial fraud and techniques and uh, we see that, uh, that at least 40 to 50 participants are taking this course on a monthly basis. Um, so you, you, can, you can see that uh, the, the scope of this offering is, is, rather, is lo- rather significant. And we see that uh, these are people from uh, Commonwealth of Independent States, former USSR republics, but also China, Baltic states, and and we also see that uh, our team has expertise in, in different geographical areas, and we have uh, uh, analysts who speak different languages. And we see that uh, tutorials, courses, this kind of offering is really not limited to one space. If, you, if you're imagining like Russian-speaking Carters, well, it's not just limited to that part of the world or just that language. We see it. In Chinese language forums, we see it in the Portuguese, uh, uh, Brazil, um, cyber criminal communities and and many others. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point is that uh, while the kind of the initial part, the uh, the hacking, so to speak, for, for as a catch-all phrase, can be done from pretty much anywhere. Fraud tends to be much more localized. Uh, for fraud to be successful, you frequently have to have individuals on the ground in the area where the compromised information uh, is supposed to be. So uh, be it in Latin America, be it in Canada, be it in Europe and Australia, you really do have to have individuals frequently who are there uh, locally who can facilitate opening up accounts, uh, withdrawing funds, uh, etc. So it's something that is a lot more localized uh, in terms of where the activity actually takes place. Yeah, can we dig into that some? Because it strikes me that that... You know, that's one of the trickier parts of, of these operations is, is converting your efforts into actual 
money wherever it is you're operating, um, having to interact with banks. There, there is, you know, there's a there's a there's a point where this interacts with the real world, the financial systems. And so, so how are they going about that? How are they handling uh, getting the money out of the online internet world in, into the real world with you know, real bank accounts? Uh, absolutely. And this is, it's really a multi-step, uh, multi-prong uh, effort. Um, and here is where you have funds, for example, if that's what we're using um, for this example, uh, funds that are located in an actual account uh, of a legitimate user, then they will typically have to have uh, another account created. Some of the ways that they do this is either through individuals that are witting accomplices, and then there are individuals who are unwitting accomplices, uh, so kind of witting and unwitting mules. Witting individuals are frequently told up front that they're going to be creating something for a fraudulent uh, transaction uh, and that they need to set this up and they need to create certain kind of uh, uh, barriers or the, to protect themselves and certain aspects of the account and of their behavior that looks legitimate so that they uh, so that the banks will not flag it uh, as if this account is there's something wrong with the account that the funds are going to be the stolen funds are going to be transferred into Conversely, unwitting individuals are frequently coerced or lured into doing something that they think is legitimate. In this case, the advantage is that they're frequently using their own accounts, uh, the advantage for the threat actors, that they're frequently using their own accounts uh, and accounts that they've probably used for quite some time, uh, and those accounts are much less likely uh, to be flagged uh, as having some illegal activity um, associated with them or some inauthentic activity associated with them. So again, the question then is really to um, recruit the different individuals, give them the proper instructions about how to move the funds. Typically, the funds will be transferred uh, frequently it's internally within the same bank, so will be transferred from a compromised account to an account that is being controlled indirectly by the threat actor who's running the whole operation, so to speak, via their mules. Uh, then, at some point, the funds will likely be withdrawn, uh, converted into some sort of physical cash or converted into some sort of cryptocurrency. And as that cryptocurrency will then be moved overseas to another location that is, and frequently there may be multiple locations and multiple accounts that the currency will go through. Sometimes they'll even uh, switch currencies so that it may be initially sent in Bitcoin, changed to something like Ethereum or Monero, and then changed back to Bitcoin before it is deposited at an account that is one step removed move from the actual threat actor who's running the operation. So again, this is the lengthy process of laundering funds so that you're not just taking account money and directly from a compromised account and wiring it to an individual who is uh, clearly has no business uh, accessing the, that funds. This is a great question, uh, Dave, because you're, you're absolutely right. You know, cyber attack and fraudsters, they need to be able to uh, to have this ability to turn and monetize uh, their fraud schemes. And and like Roman said, many of these uh, services, money laundering services, are 
they use cryptocurrencies. But also we see, like Roman said, their bank accounts being used. Some of them are um, some of the, some of them are completely fraudulent, and some of them are used on mules and bank drops. And this is an expensive service because this is a bottleneck of cybercrime in terms of uh, its fraud manifestation. You you need to be able to to cash out. Many of those services are very expensive. They can take up to fifty to sixty percent of of the transaction of, for example, the value of a, of a bank account. That's you know a cyber criminal trying to drain that account. So this is this is a, a big big service and, and a very expensive service. Help me understand. You know, you you all have um, a high degree of visibility into what's going on here. You know, and I, and I imagine you know part of that involves uh, direct access to some of these forums and and so on. Does it seem as though those people are operating with a sense of invulnerability? In other words, do do they know that? Chances are there's folks out there like you all at Recorded Future who are kind of keeping an eye on them, but they feel as though they can do that without uh, a whole lot of risk. I would say yes and no. It really depends on how far up the food chain you are. Individuals who are, for example, somewhere in uh, Eastern Europe or the former Soviet Union uh, in a country that doesn't have um, extradition agreements with uh, Western Europe or with North American countries like the United States, uh, they do have a certain sense of impunity as long as they're targeting uh, outside of their country or outside of their region. Uh, as Kirill can confirm, uh, many of the Russian language forums, for example, and that's not to say that everyone on Russian language forums is primarily in Russia. They're also in uh, other you know, places like Ukraine, Belarus, and also all over the world. We've seen individuals from North America, from China, etc., in those primarily Russian-speaking forums. But there's uh, a general rule there that you don't, and I won't use the expletive, but you don't do your business where you live. Uh, and, <laughs> and there's really uh, a lot of prohibitions and individuals will frequently get banned if they're targeting uh, Russia, Ukraine, former uh, Soviet uh, countries. Uh, and again, so there is a sense of impunity as long as you're not targeting, not going after targets in their countries. On the other hand, when you're talking to some of those individuals on the ground that we had mentioned before, individuals um, who are in North America, in Latin America, etc., cetera, uh, they have to be very careful, obviously. So that's part of the tutorial. That's part of the process of explaining how do you do social engineering? What do you look for? How do you not get caught? Um, you know, when you're installing things like skimmers, when you're going back to pick up the skimmers uh, to gather the data, how do you act? How do you look to see that there's nobody kind of watching or monitoring you, etc.? So in some instances, I think in some cases, they're actually more careful than nation state threat actors because there are real repercussions to them. There's the real potential of jail time uh, for individuals that are involved in especially the financial fraud uh, and money laundering aspect because a lot of them are located in the countries where the targets are. We have a quote from uh, one uh, dark web vendor and, and a course instructor who 
who said, if you care for your safety, do not work in the Commonwealth of Independent States. And uh, that instructor was a Russian-speaking instructor. And by work, he didn't mean real work. He, he was talking about fraud activities. And uh, But going back to what Roman was talking about and your question, Dave, at, there will be a tipping point. At, at some point, committing fraud, generating illicit income from activities like that will will spill over to the point when law enforcement or financial institutions or other agencies with enough enough visibility and authority will start to take notice and and it will be a tipping point when there is a target on the back and there is enough surveillance and enough evidence and we've seen uh, successful cases on operators that um, have services for sim swapping being arrested or those that are committing payment card fraud it it's happening all the time so there will be a tipping point and 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 at that point fraud activities will come to an end yeah it's interesting i mean I guess overall this it's always a high risk activity right you 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 spend your life looking over your shoulder to a certain degree you know i would just kind of end on a note that um, we've spoken to individuals who have literally uh, had access to over a million dollars, bank accounts with over a million dollars. And they were desperately trying to find someone who would help them uh, somehow withdraw their funds, those funds, or transfer those funds. So I think the kind of one takeaway that I hope people will take from this is that, yes, again, you need to focus on preventing uh, intrusions, preventing compromises, but you really need to focus on the preventing the fraud after the compromise as well, because if these individuals are not able to make money, then even if they do have access to all these things, sooner or later, that's going to dry up. So if we can tighten um, some of the anti-fraud mitigation uh, and, and really focus on that a bit more, I think we can really put a dent into financially motivated cybercrime. Our thanks to Recorded Futures' Kirill Boychenko and Roman Sanikov for joining us. The report is titled The Business of Fraud, an overview of how cybercrime gets monetized. You can find it in the blog section on the Recorded Future website. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.